If you ever tired of sleeping I'm a ghost beneath your bed If you're looking for conversation I'm the voices in your head I'm a healer I, I don't expect it coming into our lives in, in almost middle age that we'd suddenly become friends. Right? Yeah, I don't yeah. expect that. Hmm. And and it's probably leans more towards the, hey, we can close the gaps and maybe learn a little more about who our father was uh, and know that we exist and we can be cordial, but there's no expectation that we're going to be friends or even acquaintances. Yeah. On this episode of Playtime, Michael Zimmerman, the author of a powerful new book, Suburban Bigamy, Six Miles Between Truth and Deceit. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Call me when you're hurting And you need to hurt some more I'll cut you like a cold wind If you need someone to blame Lies have a way of catching up with people. Within a family, those deceptions can resonate with cataclysmic force of a shockwave, upending a lifetime of trust. Healing can prove the most difficult hurdle to overcome, but very often taking a lifetime. Forgiveness is another thing entirely. Set in the idyllic and affluent suburbs north of Chicago, suburban bigamy six miles between truth and deceit tells the true story of the ultimate bond between father and son betrayed. Ultimately, this is a story about gaining perspective, recovery, and the sublime assessment of fatherhood. Suburban bigamy is available at Amazon.com. The authors Michael S. Zimmerman and Michael joins me. It is such a pleasure after reading your book, brother. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here and having the opportunity to talk with you about it. I just use the video for our back and forth. This will be an audio only uh, interview. So if a pterodactyl flies through the room, um, I don't want you. Well, you know what? I, honestly, if a pterodactyl flies through the room back there, I'm, I'm posting that. So but we might have that, to show that. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> but other than that, we're, we'll be we'll be very good. I'm eager to dive right into this, man. I love the book. For, for a number of reasons, for some very personal reasons, which we'll get into. It's not only an important topic to me, but I think it's a really well done book. You should be very proud of it. And by the way, this is another this is another very important point in the book, and I didn't want to let it go without mentioning it, uh, that you're a fellow Lou Malnati's pizza lover. Oh, my favorite. That goes back decades. I, I'm such a fanatic about their pizza I don't currently live in the Chicago area, but I have several of their pizzas in my freezer because I have them, you know, they ship them ship on dry them. ice. And yes, they do. Yes, they do. And, and this comes, you know, I grew up on Gino's Pizza and and then I worked for Gino's for a, for a little while and and knew the owners of, of uh, Uno and Due, um, but Lou sure. Malnati's is, uh, is the oh. bomb, brother. It's, it's a bomb. So It's terrific. So I wanted to begin with this, moving backwards through the story a bit. As I said in the intro, this is, this is a potent tale of recovery, and you write this. There is no single day you emerge from depression and think, ah, I'm cured, I've made it. Things just slowly start to get better, and one day you notice the sun is shining again, and it feels good like it used to bask in its warm glow. 
one day the air is just a little fresher and your steps a little lighter. Your work becomes a little easier and you start to be more productive. That's powerful, man. Uh, and and very real. What Was that a realization in real time as you were first confronted with all this or or a summation looking back? I was really looking back on it. Uh-huh. I think this this really steamrolled me and, and my mother and my brother yeah. in such a way. Um, it was so shocking to unwind all these details about this life my father had lived completely unbeknownst to us. And it, it, you were hit with layers of, of things that that really steamrolled you from the sense that you were wrapping your your mind around these mm-hmm. facts you were you were unraveling and they were new and they challenged everything you thought about the life you had lived with your family. And you went through that phase initially, there was a little bit of denial, right? You're yeah. like, how could this happen? How did he do this? Yeah. And then over time you wrap your brain around the facts and, and you accept them. Mm-hmm. You accept the fact that this did happen. And then you get into the emotional impact, how, how you feel and the impact it has and, the realization that that relationship you have with your father, this guy that I really adored, is no longer going to be. It's not like he passed away suddenly and he's gone. He was still there, but yeah. yet everything I knew was severed. So, so, but before we get too far into sure. into, the, into the mechanics of the story, first of all, people would know your father if they grew up in Chicago, uh, if they drove a car, or they watched WGN TV. They they would know your dad's commercials. They would know your dad's name. They they uh, it's it's the same as your name uh, essentially. Absolutely, um, no, definitely. And, and prior to being in the car business, he was an attorney in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, my mother used to to say, "Gosh, you know, wherever your father and I went in Chicago, wherever it was, whatever we were doing, we always ran into somebody that he knew because uh-huh. you know, he had grown up there, uh, with the exception of going to college at University of Illinois." He was back in the Chicago area at Northwestern Law School, and then had lived his whole life there. So yeah. he he knew a lot of people. A little bit, a little bit iconic. So so give us a give us a brief synopsis uh, of the story. You know, we uncovered this this situation in which um, we found out he was living a double life. He had mm-hmm. a, a whole other family unit living nearby in the Chicago suburbs, different school district, literally six and a half miles away wow. on the map. And um, it was really, you know, he, he had carried this on for over 40 years. He had managed to have all the logistics in place. Routines were in place. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew their cadence. Um, there was probably a little bit of luck and a lot of planning that enabled him to do this. And it was just by chance that it unraveled on him. Yeah. He went into the hospital for a medical procedure, something we were unaware of at the time that he was having done. And he had some complications. And as a result of the complications, he needed to reach out to my mother to talk about those complications he had during mm-hmm. surgery. Um, had he gone through surgery cleanly without any any complications, he may have continued on for who knows how many more years. Uh, nevertheless, there were some questions my mother had about his story that mm-hmm. he told her about his medical complications. And that raised her flag or radar and she called the hospital and uh, it was in that phone call that with a nurse at the hospital as she was checking on him that she identified herself as Norm Zimmerman's wife and the nurse said well hey I just met you 
And my mother felt like, gosh, that doesn't make sense because my mother was in Arizona and my father was in Chicago. (laughs) So there's kind of an awkward interaction there. My mother called me shortly after that to talk about it. And I made the call to the hospital and dug into it a little bit, just casually saying, hey, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm interested in checking on my father. And the nurse was very willing to share details, which was interesting. Um, And she explained what he was in the hospital for, the procedure he had, the complications. And then I expressed uh, sincere concern about someone making sure they were checking on him. And that opened the door for the nurse to share the details that really blew this open, which was, she said, your mother, your sister, and her baby. And I just said, oh, that's that's not my mother, but that, thank you so much. I'm glad someone's checking on him. Mm-hmm. And from there, my mother and I said, all right, we've got something we need to dig into here. Something's going on. Uh, there's other people involved in his life. We jumped on the internet and started doing people searches. And there were some names that kept popping up associated with his name, in addition to our names, Mm -hmm. that started to cause concern. And we kept seeing on different people search sites, the same names coming up. Uh, So we started searching on those names and you'd start to get some details about those individuals Mm -hmm. and you'd find out where they were living. And so we started to see a little bit of a picture that there were a couple names that kept showing up Mm -hmm. and they kept showing up for the same location, one of which was Glenview nearby Winnetka, where we lived. So literally literally across the highway. Literally, right? Side note about that. You know, back then in the 70s and 80s, prior to the the internet and smartphones, we all were much more siloed in our communities. Uh, Whereas today, what he did would be really hard to pull off because I feel like the lines between school districts and communities have been blurred a little more through social media and the internet and the way our, our our lives reach beyond our communities more so now than they did previously. I want to mention that this must have been really exhausting for him. And I, I'm going to hold, but I'll hold your answer to that a, a little bit later on, because there's a significant aspect of the book that entails your empathy for everyone involved in this. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a bit. But uh, so I, I wanted to go go here. I also host a podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, and a lot of books come across my desk. Apart from researching a book on art history and reading volumes on right now on uh, on the Age of Discovery, the Reformation, and uh, the Northern Renaissance, I get probably two or three novels across my desk each week, or books I- each week. When I was first made, uh, made aware of your book, Suburban Bigamy, I thought it could go any number of ways, especially for a self-published author. I thought about my own experiences with this topic and the pain and confusion and anguish. You could have written a scree or this naked, heart-tearing, self-serving narrative. Instead, you bring us full circle through all that pain and all that that heartbreak, Michael, and betrayal to exactly what I think many of us look for in a memoir is a shared commiseration and perhaps a lesson or a signpost on getting over. Was that your intention? Absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing that up like that. Um, you know, there was a real journey here for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it spanned such a, a broad number of years. You know, it's now nine years ago from the time we almost 10 at this point, from the time we uncovered 
the story about my father's life. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so there were so many different phases to it. And I think, you know, the story I would have told five, six, seven years ago would be different than the one I'm telling now, because I've, I've been able to go through all the different, I guess, phases of grief, the denial Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the anger. uh, And then, you know, the recovery and, hitting bottom along the way. And then as I, as I reached this place where I was really feeling more recovered, I had much greater perspective on what I had gone through. Uh, I didn't have an appreciation for what it was that I was in when I was going through it. I needed to come out of the other side to really see the whole picture. And I think that's kind of leads to what you were talking about um, that I can see the whole picture more objectively. Yeah, yeah, and see all the different components to it. What what we went through, the interactions with the other family in the heated moments, as well as looking at it objectively about what it may have meant for them. So it's it's just been an enlightening experience in a lot of ways to kind of go through the whole thing and be able to look back at it. It's not an easy um, journey to take. So uh, you uh, and and I want to I want to lay out for for folks exactly. What you went through, you write, it wasn't simply infidelity. A lot of families have to deal with that type of betrayal. No, my father's deceit went far beyond sex. Through his selfish sociopathic behavior, my father built all of our lives around a massive lie, a lie about who we were and what we meant to him. And you could have very easily left it there. I think a lot of people would understand if you left it there. But you really fill in all the blanks with this story. Oh, thank you. I um, it, it took a lot of time to get there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I feel like it was emotionally draining yeah, for sure. several years, and it took a lot of a lot of time. Not only just time, but time thinking about it. Yeah, there were so many iterations of this story in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so many hours spent writing, capturing ideas and thoughts and notes, which really have ultimately just served as a way to process all the information. Mm-hmm. It, it was so challenging, not only just the facts, um, but then getting steamrolled by the emotions mm-hmm. and, and then being able to talk about it mm-hmm. in a way that tells a story somewhat objectively and, and shares with the reader, tries to share with the reader the full body of emotion yeah. and the journey. There's there's a level of vulnerability here uh, and, and a level of honesty, which is difficult for a lot of non-authors, but a lot of authors to to uh, attain. I just spoke with uh, one of the Chicago uh, Writers Association's Book of the Year winners uh, about his memoir of, of dealing with a, with a divorce. He expresses a, a really deep, level of vulnerability that is that that's very very rare so you you write in my and and another great power of this book is the journey the 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 self journey that you take us all on uh and and by extension we're we're all we all become part of that journey within our own realm of experience and our own well realm of, of hurt and betrayal. So, so you write in my early forties, I was on a, a self-destructive path, 
selfish indulgence and emotional avoidance. While I always maintained my professional responsibilities, my social life was a hedonistic blur, better fitted for a college student than a middle-aged man. I don't know where the path I was headed on would have led me, but I'm certain uh, it was nowhere good. That that's That's, first of all, very powerful, but extraordinarily naked as far as opening up to your audience. One of the big takeaways for me from this whole experience was not just pulling back the curtain on my father's life, yeah. but it really forced me to pull back the curtain on my life yeah, and yeah. do some analysis and reconciliation of where I'd been personally and then where I wanted to go. The, the situation with my father, it really unraveled all aspects of my life. It really broke me down. Yeah. I hit rock bottom. Um, it It left every aspect of my life impacted in some way. Uh, even I say I was keeping up my responsibilities professionally. I thought I was, I probably wasn't at my best, but I felt mm -hmm. like I mm -hmm. was, but I knew mm -hmm. in every other aspect of my life, it had had some kind of a remarkable impact. And so as I went further into this story in my experience, I realized I had done a lot of things or lived in, in a similarly hedonistic way as my father had. So pulling back the curtain on his life and, and tearing me down in the process really forced me to evaluate myself as well and think about where I've been and how his influence on me had maybe mm -hmm. unknowingly to myself, unbeknownst to myself, had an impact not because of his overt behavior, which I actually never saw, but the opposite, the lack of reinforcing the positive behaviors mm -hmm. he should have been. Mm -hmm. um, now, certainly I own some of my own behaviors, right? Um, and I won't shy away from that. But I that's that. a, but that's but, a hell of a, that's a hell of a transformation that you carry us through in, in the book. Sure. There, there are also some monumentous issues encompassing uh, emotion and ethics and legality and morality in this book, right? Yeah, we touch on a lot of things there. There's yeah. certainly, uh, we think about my father and the role he played. Yeah. And and then we think about, um, you know, there's certainly legal things involved there, mm -hmm. uh, estate plan things, undue influence and in the role yeah. that perhaps the other family was, was or wasn't playing in that aspect as they tried to keep us from accessing him. And then, so there's, there's, ethical things. There's legal thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, the, there's the moral thing about what my father did for all those years. I know that based on his comments to my mother about this whole thing, mm -hmm. he really gave himself a pass by saying, I took care of everybody. You didn't go wanting for anything, did you? So that was his justification for how he handled it. Um, you can question him, my father's ethics and morals for what he did, and but, the impact you know, he had on people. So I, I look at it this way: I've I've been through I've been through a war. I I have a knowledge of PTSD and and what it does what it does to a person and and the social ramifications of that. Uh, you know, and I've, so I've always always described PTSD as being completely individualistic. And 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 part of the reason is everybody's environment is different. So all of the all the social interactions that they have all all resonate out 
and back to that person and and everything that they do resonates out and, and is reinterpreted and resonates back in and so I, I see that very much in in this book as as well so your your father is is at the center of this universe and either knowingly or unknowingly and and as it, as it came to light uh, more demonstrably resonated to everyone was reinterpreted by that person and they resonated it back towards him but also to one another and to to their social environment as well did i get that sort of right if we're talking about the impact he had on us yeah yeah so i guess i guess to make it a a little clearer when you talked about the the morality that you interpret uh his immorality in this situation and and have have sort of crafted it to your own morality and then there's then, then there's this the other family and the estate situation i can see that both sides would would expect a portion of of his estate and there's there's a a moral judgment uh, or a moral reaction uh, from all those people that is is part of of that ultimate estate decision. Does that make sense? You know, in a perfect world, I, I think, you know, my mother and I certainly felt like from the very beginning, hey, Norm, do the right thing here. You're caught. We know what you did. Just make it right for everybody and do the right thing. And he really, he dug his heels in and wouldn't do the right thing. And that when it came to not doing the right thing by my mother through the divorce proceeding, that was just the beginning of him not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that cascaded down to how he handled his estate plan. You know, how he ultimately cut my brother and I out of his estate plan and you know, the ethical, moral thing would have been to say to everybody, hey, here's the deal. I did this. You know, I did this. Um, I'm treating everybody equally. Yeah. But but in the end, that's not how he did things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I look at it like he was extremely selfish for so long, all those decades with this lifestyle that he led. It, it was probably unrealistic of us to expect that he would suddenly be selfless after he got caught. But that's really, we were kind of like, gosh, all right. Even though he was, he did the wrong thing for a really long time, Mm -hmm. we'd expect him to step up and do the right thing now. Mm -hmm. And that was our failing for thinking that he would do that. And obviously it's a failing, but was it, was it that he was, because we, uh, we we were, we were going to talk about empathy here in a bit. Was he in so deep that he just couldn't untangle it for himself? So it was probably a combination of that aspect of it, yeah. along with the fact that both families weren't coming at it from the same direction, okay. right? Okay. So, for instance, we were truly, we were the legal family, and we were yeah. also his primary recipient, the primary recipient of how we spent most of his time. Mm-hmm. And we were able to reconcile that through a couple brief conversations that occurred between my half sister and I and my half sister and my mother mm-hmm. and where we were really able to understand the landscape on the other side. And then coupled with that were the conversations we had with my father. So we really began to see that we had gotten the lion's share of him 
over those decades, whereas they hadn't. So once the cat was out of the bag, I, I suspect he felt like he needed to tip the scales yeah. back the other way once they knew where he really had spent all those years when they thought he was traveling on business. Yeah, um, That's my conjecture as to what I think he probably, how he handled some, some of the things. The other aspect was more logistical on his end. He was in his late seventies. Hmm. He had health issues. They were local to him and best able to support him on a day-to-day basis with his medical needs, uh, day-to-day living needs. Um, before he had his health issues, he was independent and could come and go however he wanted and do yeah, what he wanted. Yeah. But once he was compromised and couldn't drive anymore and was in, in a wheelchair, now he was stuck. And it was kind of a just ending for this guy who'd been so independent and non-committal all along. Now he was really committed to something. And that was in in one spot without control anymore but i think he i think he was resigned to the fact that he needed help mm-hmm. and they were local so they were going to be the ones he had to tip the scales to at that point you know i, I kept i kept thinking about this throughout the book in 1994 i was in sarajevo during the siege uh, and i met and married my wife there the bosnian government required from the us consulate which was smack dab in the center of sniper alley i can't tell you the, the number of times I got shot going there, a shot at going there. But even amid a war, the Bosnian government was at least pursuing due diligence to avoid this sort of thing. They they wanted they wanted a guarantee, a paper guarantee from the US government that I wasn't married back in the States and just picking up a you know a, a Bosnian wife. My mom passed away uh, several years ago, and I found out that my grandfather had another family Mm. and some other sorted revelations you found out when your father went into the hospital i'm friends with my other my my grandfather's uh, other family on facebook although we've never met apparently my mom knew for quite some time in the book you attempted to reach out to that family and it didn't go very well yeah so i from the very beginning my my mother and I approached this whole situation feeling like the children were all innocent victims. Yeah. And I mean, my brother and I and my two half siblings, uh, we were really, truly just innocent victims to this life that my father had really orchestrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were just swept up in it. So I had I had empathy for them thinking about what they've probably endured. Yeah. And as I learned details about that family from my father, from our own research, I started to really see a picture there mm-hmm. where I, I knew how he had spent his time with them and when it wasn't with them. Mm-hmm. And I knew how much he had spent his time with us. And so I really approached this very objectively from the standpoint of, OK, this has happened. We can't change it. Mm-hmm. How we move forward with it determines whether or not we have relationships with our father, whether we are acquaintances, strangers, or friends. And I felt like since we're both, we're all innocent victims here, we shouldn't have animosity towards each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I, I misjudged that one. And, and granted, it, it's not my place to judge how everybody 
reacts, right? I, mm-hmm. I own my mm-hmm. own reactions. Everyone owns their own reactions to their own set of circumstances. You but I was come. But in the in yeah. the book, you don't throw them under the bus. No. You're you're I don't. very, very honest. And and so I, I always talk about with with authors and writers, legalities and personalities, especially in memoirs. And legalities are a big, big thing. The uh, friend of mine, a, a Marine combat vet, is is working on his memoir of his, of his experiences in Somalia and Iraq, and so I, I'm I'm working with him, try to tell that story. He keeps coming across these these ethical minefields of of how to talk about someone who may have done something dumb and then they ended up getting killed. Um, how do you how do you talk about that, especially given that their family might see this? But the but the legalities, especially for for a, a book like Suburban Bigamy, can be huge. You you can you can easily libel somebody, even if you don't name them directly. Situationally, they can uh, they can take offense or or feel libeled. So did did you get legal advice on on how to to talk about some of these situations? Or is it just the absolute honesty and and sympathetic nature of of your writing voice that helps that? It's it's really a combination of the both. So I was certainly very, you know, from a storytelling perspective, this is really my story about what I endured, what my mother and I went through and my brother and and what what transpired with us and my father it's really that story mostly. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is I took great care to um, protect their privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that comes down to changing the names in the book. Okay. As well as the manuscript did go through a legal review. Mm-hmm. Um, my attorney in Chicago is Dahlia Saper. And uh, she and her firm did a great job working with me, um, ensuring that we took care and consideration how we handled everything in the book. So, you know, I've certainly been thoughtful about how the other family might feel and given uh, consideration to certainly making sure that I've protected their privacy. Have have they seen Um, the book? Do you know? I don't, I don't know. At this point, I I don't know. There's been a, a little bit of media placement in some of the Chicago print media. Okay. So I, I would expect at some point that they might come across it. I've got, I've got a, a, a big North Shore fan base, artists, artists, and and uh, and creative people predominantly, but uh, but a, a lot of people in uh, in in the Glenview area. It, that that would be it would be really interesting to see their their reaction. But then again, they they never really wanted to be pursue a relationship with you, right? They didn't, and uh, I know we touched on this a little bit. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and granted, I don't know. I know my interactions with them as brief as they were. Yeah. Uh, I know what my father told us about them. What I don't know is what my father and the other woman told the ch- those children. Okay. So that's the wild card, for instance. Tell me if I'm wrong in this. There was, there was at least um, an inkling in in your writing of of the daughter 
that she may have been more sympathetic or or at least less hostile than the brother who who was just a little bit older than you. So the interaction, the initial interaction with uh, my half sister was a positive one. There was a real open, free-flowing exchange of information and, and trading stories and yeah. and kind of piecing together those gaps that we both yeah. knew existed. And it really filled out the picture a little more for both of us, who our father was. And, and for me, there's always been a little bit of that genuine curiosity mm-hmm. of trying to understand more about who my father was. Now that I know there was a whole other aspect to him I didn't know. And I always felt like the this half-siblings would really be helpful to one another to help fill out that picture. Yeah. Now, I've learned that they may not share the same level of curiosity that I do, but there was an initial positive exchange of information. But once my half-sister and half-brother confronted their parents, mm-hmm. that changed everything. And there was a real circling of the wagons on that in that family such that it became hostile, the environment. Mm-hmm. And... There was, there was overt hostility towards me from that side of the family, let's say that side of the mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced that when I visited my father at, at his home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced it uh, over the phone after that visit. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes to the fact that I, I don't know what stories they were fed yeah. by their parents. Yeah. There, there could be denial on their side. There could be a little bit of brainwashing, whatever the case. And and granted, you know, my father was the master manipulator, right? He pulled mm-hmm, this off mm-hmm. for so long. So when he was in a in a place of needing self-preservation, right? When mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the shit hit the fan mm-hmm. and initially he hit it with us and then he was managing that. Mm-hmm. But then when it hit on that side of the family and it was right in his living room. Yeah. Then he really went into this mode of self-preservation, circling the wagons, because he still needed them to take care of him. So let me let me flip this around here a little bit. Sure. Um, is it is it just curiosity that you would want to pursue uh, a relationship or even a cordial relationship, or is there is there a a a, a relation dynamic? Is it just sort of putting a period at the end of the sentence? And and then walking away. Honestly, it, it's probably a little bit of all of those things from okay. the standpoint of there, there's gaps, right? Now that yeah, we've learned yeah. to live this life, I have there's gaps that exist now. And I'm mm-hmm. like, gosh, how do we fill those in? He was only going to share so much with us before he died yeah. because he was still worried about the other side finding out too much. Mm-hmm. So and he told me that one of my final visits to him uh is that mike I, i'm just not going to tell you too much because you're going to tell the other kids that's what he was really worried mm. about wow. so there are gaps that'll probably always be there unless the sibling half siblings ever speak about it i i, I don't expect it at coming into our lives in, in almost middle age that we'd suddenly become friends yeah right? i don't yeah. expect that mm. and and it's probably leans more towards the hey we can close the gaps and maybe learn a little more about who our father was uh, and know that we exist and we can be cordial, but there's no expectation that we're going to be friends or even acquaintances. Uh, That's probably the best way to describe it. Rock bottom chapter 16 in the following chapter, uh, you write this, there is a reckoning of sorts buried in the story. There is my history 
of reckless hedonistic pursuits and the blinding haze around those activities, which lifted only after the revelations about my father's behavior wreak havoc in in my life. How how necessary uh, or unavoidable do you believe that was to the process of moving forward? That that hedonism and recklessness is it is it possible to go through something like this and eliminate that from the process of grieving and anger or is is that a process that that we would all need to to learn how to navigate and get over you know i spent several years hitting rock bottom before i really yeah, realized yeah. that it, it pulled the curtain back for me on my own life mm-hmm. so I think going through what I did, all aspects of it, including the self-reflection and the reconciliation of, gosh, I'm a little bit too much like him in some ways. Um, Going through that was, I think for me, a crucial part of coming out of the other side in a better place. Um, I certainly could have continued to hide behind the hedonistic lifestyle and and even taking hitting rock bottom as a as a means to continue the hedonistic lifestyles as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for, for certainly the first several years of the journey and hitting rock bottom, I was yeah. certainly utilizing the the hedonistic pursuits as a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, but eventually, the longer I spent kind of at rock bottom, the more I realized what I was doing wasn't making it any better. Mm-hmm. And I just spent so much time going sideways and not understanding why it wasn't getting better. Um, but that that's when it started to hit me that, gosh, everything's got to change. The people I'm around, hanging out with, the, pe- the, the women I'm dating, everything needed to change because it just it wasn't a good support system. And it wasn't it wasn't going to progress my life in a positive direction. And, it was going to keep it where it was. I promise I'm going to get to the catalyst for for that that sea change in just a moment. I recently spoke, as I said, with a uh, with a critically acclaimed author who teaches creative writing. He's a professor of creative writing. I noted how bright his narrative became, depending on the setting of a chapter. He he has this opening chapter that's very very dark. And, and then he changes locations, physically changes locations. He's now sitting on his mother's porch in, uh, in Chiang Mai in Thailand. And suddenly the whole narrative just brightens and opens up. I found that same light, this wonderful dawn opening up. I, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, this is, this is the, the dawn part of, uh, of your, uh, of your writing uh, to, to, Continue my analogy here. Anything short of being honest with myself about a new direction would result in a relapse back to the bad habits and bad relationships. I needed to surround myself with the right people, as you were saying just a moment ago, uh, and I needed to immerse myself within the confines of a much more committed lifestyle than I had ever allowed myself to to pursue. So there's, there's before the dawn. So this is where I saw it just sort of brighten and open up. All at once, I was ridding myself of the wrong relationships, ridding myself of habits that were too eerily similar to my father's and immersing myself in a different direction. All that came on the heels of the most traumatic five years of my life. 
It was going to be a serious undertaking. However, one which ultimately led led me to recovery and redemption. This this beautiful opening up, um, and and this is what makes this book so significant in my uh, and powerful in in my opinion. Um, you you wrote and and you you said here that your recovery was not was not a quick one. How cathartic was was writing the book? It was a big part, and and it was not an easy process from the standpoint that yeah, yeah. so much of the writing in the early years, and I say like the 14, 15, 16 period of time, a lot of that was just putting things on paper to understand them. We, we'd been bamboozled with all these different details and all these emotions, and you're trying to put it together mm-hmm. and, and make the story flow and make sense. So yourself, you can understand it and be like, what did you, what just happened here? Yeah, and you put yeah. this chronological timeline together and think about what you've learned and, and who the different players are and, and all the emotions that went along with it. So, so much of the writing initially was just trying to wrap my brain around what happened. Right. And then as time went on, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as time went on, I realized there's probably a really interesting story in here. Um, and, and then it became oh, took on this other, other part, which was, it was, it was my life. It wasn't yeah. just something that happened. I was living this. It was in me. I can't change it. Mm-hmm. And it had such a remarkable impact on me for so many years. So there was a very cathartic aspect to uh, the writing. And, you know, the writing almost became as big a part of the journey as the redemption that came out of the, the end, right? Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't have recovered if I hadn't been writing about it. And... So that was a big deal. And certainly it served as a vehicle to heal and in the end, share the story. But you, uh, you, you put it in such, such succinct verbiage that I think people, psychologists and psychiatrists and, and, uh, and professional people have, have trouble bringing that, that level of, of clarity to to a healing process. And and you, you do it magnificently, man. Thank you. It, it was um it took a lot of time. Yeah. Um yeah. And, and the other the other part of not only the writing, but the, the healing, there were so many iterations to that. Um, you know, for a long time nothing good happened after this, right? I was just going sideways and all I saw was darkness and negativity in yeah. everything. And it was, it was, there were little things that would slowly start to change and I wouldn't notice them at the time. It's the kind of thing where once things got much better, mm-hmm. then I was like, gosh, things have changed. I didn't notice the incremental change as it was happening. Just like I didn't notice the incremental change as I was going downhill either. Right. You, you don't see it when you're in it. Day to day, moment by so moment, what, second by second. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and it took gaining perspective on both ends, not only on the negative stuff, but then the, the recovery to have perspective that it ha- had occurred. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, there were a lot of a lot of pieces to that. And then you finish in this way, which was which was the perfect poetic ending through the context of having a son. It couldn't be more just for me personally. Um, fatherhood in general has been remarkable uh, and such an awesome journey, um, and. and obviously life-changing. We all say it's life-changing, but um, for me personally, after what I had gone through 
and the way I'd led this very independent hedonistic lifestyle that had shunned taking on that kind of responsibility of being a parent. Mm -hmm. Now I was, was in it and loving it and realizing I needed it way more than I realized. Yeah. And then in addition to being a, a new father, I had a son, which for me personally just brought the whole story to a close because now I have all this perspective on this experience I had with my father who mm -hmm. I adored and thought was this wonderful guy. And meanwhile, I didn't realize he was having subtle negative influences on me, which per perhaps led me down the path I had been. Yeah. And now as a father to a son, I, I look at my son and I'm in awe of him. And I think about all the things I want to do with him that my father didn't do right with me. And there's always, there's a, there's a bit of, for me, the healing process is being able to be a great father with my son in a way that my father missed with me. And that's a big part of my healing. I was astounded by, by that part of the book. Um, I think filtering it through the prism of, of your father um, and your experience with your father, it, it really becomes this, this poignant definition of, of fatherhood. And it's, it's even more poignant based, based upon the journey that we've taken along with you through the book. It's really beautiful, beautiful. Had I gone through this and not become a father, there's no question I'd, I'd be better than I was because I had gone through some sort of a recovery. Yeah. But but being a father and then father to a son, for me, it was really the icing on the cake from the standpoint of not just recovery, but also being able to utilize what I went through with my dad and, and turn that into such a positive thing for my son and I. And that is the magic behind this book. Um, I, I can't think of a better better place to, to finish the, the conversation except to say this. Michael S. Zimmerman's latest book is a powerful true story titled Suburban Bigamy, Six Miles Between Truth and Deceit. The book was just released on Amazon. I will post a link to the notes in the notes below. Get this book. It it, it transcends this this topic and and really becomes a, a wonderful roadmap to healing, recovery, forgiveness, and, and fatherhood, man. Did a hell of a job, Michael. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Love having the opportunity to talk with you about it today. It's great. Uh, and we're we're gonna make some noise here and uh we're, we'll post uh at least a part of this on the uh, Chicago Writers Association. Uh, podcast as well or with with their thousands of of book lovers thank you so much this was this was wonderful it was a pleasure i appreciate it and thank and you, you. Had... it was a real pleasure talking with you too i have to say and i know we're not talking about it but there's certainly a little bit of concern mm -hmm. and apprehension mm -hmm. about how this will be received on the other side yeah i'm uh, i'm certain i'm certain but i i think I think you broach it with uh, with sensitivity and empathy. Hopefully that that will carry the day. But in in the end, you you've crossed all the uh, all the legal T's and dotted all the legal I's. Uh, so who who can say how anybody will react to anything? But it's an important story, and uh, and, and I, I think it's it's worthy of being published uh, and being widely read. I, I I think it would make a hell of a movie, honestly.
you know, uh, along those lines, I am certainly open to that too, mm-hmm. whether it be movie or series, limited series, whatever it may be. It, it would make for a very interesting story. That's for sure. It certainly would. Um, so I, I appreciate everybody's support and, and their reaction. It's been wonderful. Good to yours, you. yours included. Thank you so much. Oh, my, my pleasure. It was, it was a pleasure reading the book. Uh, and uh, if you're ever in Chicago and in need of a uh, partner for, uh, for Lou Melnati's, feel free to give me a call. Absolutely. Ah. It's the best pizza. It certainly is. Two lane roads and And finally, from my friends at Bloodshot Records, Louisiana born and raised, Chris Canterbury's latest album is Quaalude Lullabies, an introspective collection of pure country blues. We open with Heartache for Hire. Find out more about Chris at ChrisCanterburyMusic.com. This is Fall Apart. Hit my stride on a lonesome highway. Cut my teeth. A link to all of our guests are in the notes below. And if you enjoy this program, please feel free to share it and don't forget to click the subscribe button and receive notifications on future programs. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Tattered dreams and broken rhymes Telling tall tales from a different time Feeding into my misery Like quarters down the slot machine Hitting my stride On a lonesome highway Cutting my teeth on a broken heart When the stones Come rolling my way Hold me close So I don't fall apart Silver wings and a pound of grass Sleeping under an overpass On the outskirts of a sundown town Makes a guy like me want to turn around Hit my stride on a lonesome highway Cutting my teeth on a broken heart when the stones come rolling my way Hold me close so I don't fall apart Hold me close so I don't fall apart